Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Well, good evening and welcome to this event on dementia and decision theory. Um, Welcome to our audience here and to people watching at home online. So I wanted to organise this event because... I work in decision theory, as do many people in the LSE philosophy department. And I think that decision theory should help us make good decisions. And it was when my mum was diagnosed with dementia that I realised how difficult it is to make decisions in this space. Uh, So it's difficult for the person who's got dementia because the relevant facts keep slipping away from them. Um, Difficult to make a decision about uh, what to wear or where to live, big decisions like that. So often carers, family members, medical staff, friends make decisions on that person's behalf. And then you might think, well, you're trying to act in the person's best interest. Maybe you're trying to do what the person would have wanted. But it can be hard to work out what that is. And also there's this important question of whether we should be doing what they would have wanted before they got dementia, or whether we should more just be trying to keep the person as happy as possible in the moment. And there's people on the front line, you know, family members and carers, making these decisions all the time, these really difficult decisions. And there's also a problem thinking about your own future self. So if you think maybe when you're old, maybe you'll have dementia, um, what, what will you choose then? And do you want to choose now what's going to happen to that future self? Do you want to lock some decisions in? Um, should you do that? And how would you go about doing it? So these are all really difficult decisions, I think. Um, and they're decisions that affect an enormous number of us. So I read recently that almost a million people in the UK have dementia. So that's about 1 in 70. It's not 1 in 70 people will develop dementia at some point in their life. It's 1 in 70 people in the UK have dementia right now. So many people here in the audience will have some experience of dementia. They'll know someone with dementia or will have known someone with dementia or will develop dementia later in their lives. So these these difficult decisions are going to affect us all. So I'm joined by a fantastic panel tonight to talk about these difficult decisions. Um, So Richard Pettigrew is a decision theorist with a particular interest in making choices for your changing future selves. Nikki Gerard, who is a carer, a campaigner, and also a novelist. Um, Ruth Bright, who um, works in, works on reminiscence activities in residential care and has had and is also by the way LSE alumna <laughs> and David Jarrett who works as many many years of experience working um, as a doctor in geriatrics so thank you so much to all my panelists for being here today um, so Nikki I'd like to start with you uh, you've written this wonderful book what dementia teaches us about love. 
what, read, what led you to write this book, to have an interest in this topic? Okay, so what led me to have an interest in dementia is very unsurprisingly, and like almost everyone who has an interest in dementia, is personal experience. I mean, you talk about <clears throat> one in 70. I mean, I think it's one of those illnesses that is all around us. It's everywhere, and we don't see it. And then suddenly, and very vividly, we do see it, and we recognise it, and it's something that I wish more of us would think about before it actually happens. And my, my father, who I was very close to, had Alzheimer's, and he lived with Alzheimer's for many years at home, like your, like your mother, I believe, um, and was looked after by my mother and by all of us. And for about 10, I think about 10 years, he lived well with dementia. And then he had this spectacularly awful experience of going into hospital um, where, and I don't know if people in this audience will have experienced the same kind of thing, and I bet you would have experienced it many times over. He went into hospital. There were very restrictive visiting practices. Um, then there was an outbreak of norovirus. It was like a tiny little rehearsal for what happened during COVID. We were kept out of his ward. He was there for a ridiculously long time. He only went in with bed sores. And by the time I went to get him out, he was... Um, he was no longer living with dementia. He was dying with dementia, and he could. He went in mobile. He could no longer walk. He went in articulate. He could no longer even say "I am." Um, he couldn't recognise anyone. He couldn't speak. He couldn't. I mean, he couldn't do anything. He lost all his capacity. Um, and I, I wouldn't say he lost his self. And maybe we could talk about that later, because in your book you talk anyway. So. He, we, we thought if we took him back home, we could recover him. We thought if we took him back home and did all the things that we hadn't done when he was in hospital, if we held his hand and talked to him, helped him walk, fed him, showed him the garden he loved, just kind of gave him the kind of recognition of, as a person that he hadn't had for all those weeks in hospital, we could get him back, and we didn't. So he spent nine months slowly dying and at the end of that so this is rather a long answer to your question at the end of that process of looking after my father for 10 years in a, in a kind of contented way and then for his last nine months in a really horrible and traumatic way especially for my mother um, I did I set up a campaign with a friend and the campaign was about trying to ensure that people with dementia and with other forms of cognitive impairment, that when they went into hospital, or when they went into a home, they shouldn't be disconnected from those people they love. So at their time of greatest need, the kind of tethers are broken and it can be fatal. So that campaign was called John's Campaign and that was 2014. So I'm very bad at maths, what's that? Nine years ago now. So I spent a long time kind of working with people with dementia and carers and doctors um, and nurses. And at the end of that, I thought I needed to write a book about it, probably because that's what I do. I'm a journalist and I'm a writer. And that was my way of trying to make sense of something that had been so kind of revelatory for me and I say revelatory it was both shocking but also 
I wanted to try and think about what it meant, not what it means, not just what it means for the person who has dementia or the person who cares for the dementia, but what it means kind of socially, medically, politically, economically, psychologically, emotionally, existentially really, because it seemed to me that we spend a long time thinking about what it means in a kind of, the book's called What Dementia Teaches Us About Love. So it's like a way of trying to turn it back. What it teaches us about what it is to be human. Looking after Dad and then working on Jan's campaign, it completely challenged all the ways I thought about agency. I mean, I used the word so blithely all through my life to have agency, to be self-sufficient, to be independent. All these things I value. Actually, when people get old and when they lose their memory, and when they get dementia, all the things that I have valued so much through all my life, they fall away. What is it to become helpless? How do we think about people who are helpless? How do we think about our own helplessness? So all these, these kind of, it felt very urgent to me that I should, I should and then other people I hoped should think about what do we value in life and how do we treat people with love and respect and kindness when they're losing those things that we most value in our own selves. Sorry, that's a very long answer. No, that's, that's a great answer, yeah. And you talk about um, respecting the person with dementia, right? And I'm wondering what that involves, whether in, that involves um, giving them agency to make their own choices or whether part of the reason why you want their loved ones there in hospital is because their loved ones are the ones who can choose best. So that's, so, that's such a good question, because of course it's both. So there is a kind of way in which I think we take away decisions from people who are older and who are kind of, whose memory is failing very swiftly. And I mean, I have a very strong memory of when Dad was in hospital and people would just talk over him. And you, I mean, we've all, we're all familiar with that. that, that and it, it happens when people are old, even before they've lost their memory. People just talk about you, not to you. And that use of the word we, and doctors who come in and speak to the relatives. And there was a doctor who was a very kind of tired Eastern European doctor who had a very kind face, and he used to talk, he used to come in and shake my father's hand, and call him Dr. Gerard. Um, and he would ask Dad for permission to sit down and he would talk to him as well as to us. And I don't know if my father by that stage could understand any of that, but it felt profoundly important to kind of acknowledge his essential humanity. And it feels profoundly important to do that right up to the brink of when they're when they're, when they're dying, that we need to acknowledge that, that this kind of shared humanity that we have and the fact that they're a person in the world. And even if, often, often people with dementia, they retain things. You don't, you don't understand how much they retain. They might lose their language, but there's something often there that you can reach. I mean, you do this, you, yeah. you do this all the time, that thing of you, you can have access to something other than language, and there are other forms of communication. I mean, you know, kind of music, s s 
stories. My dad used to love poetry. He could recite poetry when he couldn't say a single syllable. He could join in poetry. So there's that. There's trying to find ways of reaching them and involving them. Even if they can't make the decision, you involve them in that decision. And then that thing about being the carer, the spouse, the partner, the child. You, you become... It's almost like a bird with a nest. You know, we're porous beings. That we don't just stop where our skin stops. That, you know, the carer becomes like the gatekeeper, the memory, the voice, the cognitive ramp. They're that, like the extension of the self. So are you almost suggesting that um, for the person with dementia, their family, um, friends, the people who are caring for them, are part of their own self? and so can have agency on I, their behalf. Well, I guess I, I, guess I am, although I, I'm also worried about <laughs> saying they can have agency on their own behalf. I mean, I think I, I was very struck with my father and then with other people I have met and spent time with with dementia, my mother who dies this year as well, about how, and I use the word porous, how porous people become and how much they kind of flow out into the world, and the world flows back into them, um, in both a terrifying and, a, and an extraordinary way, sometimes. And I think that, I mean, it, there's no answer to this, is there? They're just questions. They're, we just need to be kind of aware that, that it is very easy to start, you know, sometimes it's very obvious what the sensible decision is, but sometimes the sensible decision isn't the decision you should be taking. You should be, you should be, you should be taking a decision that involves thinking about who they are. And you talk about being locked, you know, that where the, the past self. I mean, we'll come. I mean, I'm, I'm rambling here. The, whether the past self, self should be involved in the present self, and kind of yes and no. I mean, of course, yes and no. There are people who become happier when they have dementia. And their past restrictive self-censoring self falls away and it releases something else so I just think it's just something we have to treat with kind of delicacy and kindness and take everything into account as it happens great thank you so much yeah I want to come back to your your point about people becoming happier but I want to bring Ruth in because Ruth has so much experience working um, as an activity coordinator for older people in residential care. So residential care would be where um, a person has left their own home and is living in a care home setting where daily activities, uh, they're being helped with their daily activities, right? Yeah. Um, what, what inspired you to work with people in residential care? Um, I don't know about inspired, but <laughs> life happens, doesn't it? And. Um, I was struggling to finish my degree at this august place um, back in the 80s um, and had a bit of a love-hate relationship with my studies. Um, I was studying government and eventually graduated in 92, having been here a very long time. Um, and during that period, a distant relative um, by marriage developed vascular dementia. And this meant that she had a very sudden, jagged change that she lost a chunk of her memory in one go. And of course, that was incredibly traumatic for her close relatives. But as someone who was a bit more distant from the situation, 
um, I developed a sort of new friendship with her, with her as a different person, basically. Um, and about a couple of years after that, I was elected as a local councillor in London and sat on a social services committee. And during that time, very sadly, um, my colleagues here refer to, sadly, abuse in care sometimes. Um, but there was a scandal over, over people being ill-treated in a residential home, and I was very involved in uncovering that. So I've had a bit of a bizarre CV because I've been involved in frontline work with people with dementia, but also sort of policy and political work, trying to improve the status of people with dementia in our society as well. Yeah, great, thank you. So oh, incidentally, Anna, there's a very famous music therapist called Ruth Bright. Um, it, I'm not her, so if anyone turned up hoping to see her, please don't be too disappointed. Um, thanks, yeah, I wanted to pick up on something. Um, so Nikki said that people are sometimes happier, people mm. sometimes become happier. And this is one of the ideas that kind of haunts me, because yeah. a lot of us have a kind of horror at the idea of one day being old and we have an idea of what it would be like to be in a in a care home setting right mm -hmm. and as something that we don't want and so one of the things that I'm wondering is and of course I can't, I can't find good words to ask this question I'm going to ask it crudely and then I'll explain why it's a bad question but the crude question is are people with um, moderate or advanced dementia, are they happy? So I know that everybody's having a different experience, but when we look ahead and we think, I wouldn't want to be that person, mm. is that right or is that wrong? Is it maybe the case that actually it's quite nice, like people are enjoying themselves and we should look forward to it? Or <laughs> Yeah, what does your experience tell you? Uh, it's complex. <laughs> I, I suppose Jeremy Bentham or Paul Dolan would say happiness is it, that's the thing, and nothing else much matters. Um, certainly, there is a kind of cliche around people who work in residential homes that it's, come on, have a nice cup of tea, and we're going to do an interesting activity, that it's very, very patronising. But I'm really glad to say in the place where I work, um, it, it's, it's mutual, things are reciprocal between staff and, sorry Dave, I know you don't like this word, residents, <laughs> residents, people with dementia. Um, I mean, just last week we had an event where we were playing 1970s music, we had a sort of Abra afternoon. Again, that sounds like a sort of cliche of residential care, here's a sort of um, middle of the road activity. Um, but it was just wonderful. Um, I had colleagues singing. There was somebody there who, frankly, he was frozen when, when the event started and he didn't seem very happy. And he just came round with the atmosphere of the music and the sense of friendship. So it isn't really for me to say if someone with dementia is happy or not. Um, but I would say... Uh, I fear the disease less having worked where I work now because it is possible for uh, people to, to enjoy themselves. We're not in, in residential care, someone is not in a hospital, it can be a holiday. It can be something that accepts that life may be a little bit smaller than it was, but it can still be eventful and it can still be full of small, enjoyable choices. You need to define happiness. 
Mm. <laughs> I mean, what do you mean by happiness? Yeah. I mean, there's a big, big question about whether oh, if you I'm lose your kind of sense of self or whatever, can you be happy? Or is it just, mm. are you just contented? I mean... Yeah, I... Um, I'm chairing, so unfortunately I shouldn't start talking about my thoughts of happiness. But yeah, I do, I, I see what you mean. There's this distinction, right, between in the moment pleasures and something deeper and bigger than that, where you might not be enjoying yourself right now, but you are happy in some more important way. And this actually relates to my next question because. Um, I guess when you're working with people who have dementia, you have a lot of difficult decisions to make. And I know we've exchanged an email about some of them <laughs> where you have to balance um, what they would have wanted given yes. their lifelong values um, against what might make them happy right now. So maybe you could share your examples and tell us something about how you responded to them. Well, so, some of those things don't matter. You have a right to change in older age as you have a right to change when when you're young. I mean, I personally like gaudy things, I like bling, I like things that aren't perhaps that tasteful, and if I suddenly develop an interest in minimalism when I develop dementia, that doesn't really matter, it's just a preference, isn't it? It's an aesthetic thing, it's not important. But I think if somebody has very strong core beliefs they've had throughout their life, I would be very cautious about, for example, an evangelical Christian being invited to the residential homes Halloween party, where there are things there that may, they might consider something to do with the occult. So I would be very, very um, aware of somebody's biography, but as long as somebody has capacity, and the law, we were discussing this earlier just before the meeting, the law says if you can understand, retain information, weigh information up and communicate, you have full capacity. And so therefore, if somebody changes their mind about something. It's not for me, as, as a worker, to say that they cannot do so. It's a very rigorous definition of capacity, so I'm not sure oh, I can do all this. No, no, it? absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about that, that the, the law on this as well, yeah. Well, you know, I, I would probably um, maybe argue against people being happy in the end stages of dementia. And mm -hmm. um, certainly in the beginning, when people start to have mild cognitive impairment, mm -hmm. they have some insight and they get very distressed. Mm -hmm. Why can't I, um, what's going on? I just can't remember things and they may not recognise someone they should recognise. And it becomes apparent to them that something is wrong. Now, in the later stages of dementia, when people lose language, um, uh, they may appear benign and uh, content. There's certain reflexes um, that people, you know, people will say, oh, how are you today? And they'll say, oh, not so bad. That's almost like hardwired on a brainstem level, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it comes from higher up in their uh, uh, cognition. I've seen lots of very severely demented people who have a sort of existential pain, they look distressed um, and when demented people start, their behaviour goes down, you've got to start thinking why is that, are they in pain but can't tell you, are they constipated and you know just feeling uncomfortable or are they depressed uh, uh, and they might start rocking backwards and forwards and they look distressed 
and it's very difficult to get through to them. But sometimes people have a huge amount of, of distress at the end of their life. And, you know, I, I saw in my own mother, like Nikki, I had a 10-year um, experience of dementia in both of my parents. Uh, and I saw in my mother initially a great deal of distress when she knew things were um, uh, not right. She was a very anxious person all her life. You know, five minutes late back from school, she'd be standing there at the window expecting a policeman to knock on the door. She was very, very anxious. At the end of her illness, she was less anxious, I have to admit, uh, and accepted all the inane little rituals of the, uh, the nursing home uh, uh, quite benignly, whereas in her youth she would really been contemptuous of it. And um, uh, so she became a little less anxious, but it was very distressing for everyone else to see such a diminished person. Uh, and she would accept things that were, in, we're talking about decision making, she'd always say, I would hate to be like that, I hate, don't, whatever you do, let that happen. And when she was demented, she would accept anything that was offered to her, uh, antibiotics, flu jabs, uh, statins to stop a heart attack, when we all felt, well, a heart attack would be an absolute blessing. So, um, uh, yes, some people can be... Uh, benign music and other things can, can, can bring out, you know, can go beyond the, uh, language and touch people at a, a, at a deep and it's almost primal level. But I've seen a lot of suffering uh, in, in, in elderly, demented people, and sometimes it's, it's quite difficult to uh, uh, control, you know, aggression, violence, uh, 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 and, you know, it's it, 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 you know, very distressing for them and also for their loved ones. Yes, yeah, and from all of your experience of working with older people that you describe in your book, um, somehow this has led you to write your own living statement and will, right? Which actually appears in, in, in the book. So one of the chapters is, um, is the living statement and will. We find out that you don't want sugar in your tea and coffee, yeah. what, that you do want to watch The Godfather, and yeah. so on. Yeah. What inspired you to create well, this? Well, there's, there's sort of living statements where we, uh, people need to know the sort of things that we like and the sort of things that we don't like that um, are likely to stay with us for, 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 for much of our lives. And then there is the sort of um, advanced directive where you can actually... Uh, say what you would like done in case of any medical problems and you could have that, it can be witnessed and signed and then it has some legal binding up until you lose your mental capacity and then it becomes a very grey area. So I, I uh, just said, you know, if I'm in a nursing home and I'm demented, I don't want to be protected, I want to go outside, I want to feel the rain, I want to uh, have a drink. It distresses me that alcohol seems to be banned in any uh, uh, institution. Uh, I want certain foods. But also I said that you know, if I developed uh, uh, a pneumonia, I wouldn't want antibiotics, I don't want flu jabs. Um, you know, if i am uh, uh, got an infection that is causing symptoms, then yes, treat me so that I'm not suffering. Uh, but no 
tube feeding, no drips, you know, if I can't swallow, then, you know, keep me comfortable. I said, you know, opiates in elephantine doses if I need them. And um, uh, that's what I want now. And, you know, perhaps uh, when I'm, if I'm in that position, then, you know, wait and see, it's coming as the uh, um, uh, Philip Larkin poem that you mentioned in your books says that, you know, whether I would, uh, uh, you know, I hope that those decisions will be respected. Yeah, but do you worry that you might change your mind uh, um, when you get to that point? Like, well, I don't know, maybe you'll be enjoying yourself. Well, you know, <laughs> most of my life has been lived with a sort of mild, chronic, uh, uh, Celtic gloom and anxiety, but that's the way I am. And if I suddenly lose that, I'm not sure that that's going to be the, 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 the same me. And I don't want that me to have power over this me, which has lived this way for most of my life. Do you want yeah. to respond? Yeah. What's moot about that, though, is someone has to curate... You, 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 I mean, your advanced directive and, and your commentary around it is wonderful. You want the grain from the grain in your yeah. residential home. But someone has to not enforce your previous... Let's, not looking at the medical stuff, but looking at, say, the cultural stuff, that someone has to make sure that your environment is culturally in keeping with, with, with what you once wanted. Well, yeah, and I hope... And that person will probably be on the minimum wage yeah. and very busy. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. But, you know, one hopes that people who know you, perhaps, you know, your, we'll your family will be able to advocate on your behalf. Mm. Um, because my poor old mother had to sit there and there'll be on a loop um, uh, uh, tapes of uh, Max Bygrave uh, songs, you know, for which you're all of you too you young to even you realise how horrible they are. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is terrible that people lose, you know, even the basic things like the music they like, the food that they yeah. like. People and who love punk are listening to Vera Lynn. I know. Just, it's just, but they're not. They're not. It's not everywhere. Yeah, of course. Well, you know. There's still a lot of those punks uh, around. I went to the 100 Club a couple of weeks ago to, to see uh, uh, um, the UK subs, and I tell you, there were ancient punks there with artificial hips. But so, you know, what happens to them when they are in the, uh, uh, in, in the nursing home? It needs to be respected. You know, you must, the way you've lived your life must continue. Can I speak up for residential homes? Yeah. Which is that? Thank you. The, so it's an. I'm virulent. I, I have a kind. I have a like many people. I have an absolute horror when I think I might end up in a home. Although I have much more of a horror when I think my children might end up caring for me, which mustn't happen. No, we I agree. Yeah. Um, it, my mother was made me promise she would never go into a home. Absolutely, it was like a pledge. And then actually she had to go into a home. So I broke that promise to her. And she was very kind of frail and all over the place. She went into a home. And it was honestly one of the most wonderful, mm, wonderful like end of life mm. that anyone could have. They, they looked after her beautifully. These people on kind of zero contract and minimum wage, people, people who have been kind of largely expelled because of Brexit as well, they were just... 
I, I, it makes me so angry, A, that they don't get recognised for the work that they do, and also that they get paid such an incredible, they're, they're so undervalued as a kind of workforce, these people who work in residential homes. And I think actually often it can be a way of, I think sometimes at the end of life, everything can get very, very chaotic at home. Um, whereas in a, in a hospice or in a, or in a residential home where people are properly trained to deal with this, it can be a safe place and it can be a very, a very kind of kind and tender experience. One of my jobs was to remove guilt from yeah. children. And they would say, I always promised mum I'd never send her to a home. And I just said, you've done absolutely everything you possibly can and it's physically just not possible. And you know, People in their 60s are looking after people in their 90s. Yeah. And, um, uh, and um, I, I think parents, I hope I would never put my children in a position where they would feel guilty uh, about anything. And I, I, you know, it upsets me when, older, when people have said, don't ever put me in a home, because you don't know what the future holds. Right. You know, if you're quadriplegic and needing tube feeding, then you can't easily be looked after right. by a, a 65-year-old daughter, usually a daughter, uh, who's also got arthritic hips and not so well. But of course, guilt is hardwired into us, isn't it? Yeah, well... Yeah. Let me bring in Richard, because this idea of yourself uh, changing over, ti over time you thinking that you know what you're going to want in the future and then getting there and finding you're a different kind of person relates to uh, your book. Can you explain the sort of problem that you're grappling with in this book, Choosing for Our Changing Selves? Yes, so the, the motivating example is not um, the, the case of choosing on behalf of um, a sort of future self who might be um, cognitively impaired in, in this sort of way. The, the sort of the book is really a, a response to uh, uh, another book by an American philosopher called Laurie Paul called Transforms of Experience, and her central example is um, becoming a parent. But the key feature it shares with this sort of um, issue of, of choosing on behalf of future selves who, who might be cognitively impaired because, or, or suffering from dementia, and um, because what she's interested in is that certain experiences in your life might change um, who you are, and in particular, what she's, what she's kind of uh, driving at is that it might change your values. The thing about who you are that it will change is, is what you value, what you prefer, what things you think of as, as good. And so the sort of fundamental, so and her ideas that this sometimes happens when people become parents, they might beforehand not really value the experience of being a parent, not really want that, not think that's going to be the best way for their life to go, and they become a parent and the process of becoming a parent and various things around that change their, their values enormously. They come, form a bond with the child that they have, that child becomes enormously important to them. Suddenly it becomes that they couldn't think that their life would go well without that particular child in their life. So that's the, that, that example is really just, a is just to, sort of, um, uh, to motivate a structural issue with our decision making, that you can, um, you can know in advance, perhaps, or, or, but also this possibility you might be uncertain about it, that your values, who you are, core features of yourself might change, core features that are crucial to how you make decisions, because we make decisions on the basis of our values. 
And so the question then arises, when I'm making this decision, whether to become a parent or if I'm making a decision now to, how to write my living will or how to uh, set down an advanced directive, I'm making it on behalf of, I'm making that decision now on behalf of a self that might be really quite different from me, might be dramatically different from me, and in particular might have very different values. I mean, not just that they you know, might have changed from liking punk to liking some other sort of music, which, you know, as, as Ruth was saying, is sort of, you know, it's not an aesthetic thing, we don't really care too much about that. Um, but it, core things might have changed, moral features might have changed. I had a, a friend who's whose um, father suffered from a, a very severe form of um, dementia and his moral outlook changed dramatically. Someone who had kind of fought for various social justice causes throughout his career started sort of at least saying things that were sort of abhorrent, would have been abhorrent to his uh, past self. And so there's, so I mean, that's just, that's the sort of structure and the, 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 the book is about trying to solve this problem and I the view that I take, which I think comes back to something that David was saying, that and I suppose it's been throughout the discussion, is that what we do when we make these decisions is we choose on behalf of a collective, and that collective is the set of selves that make up the person that we are across the course of our lives. So where we think of ourselves as a single person that kind of endures for however long we get to live, actually we're a kind of corporate entity, we're a kind of collective of different selves, each one of which might have different values and that make up us across the course of our life. And so that when we're making decisions on behalf of, um, that, that will affect, you know, um, ourselves, we're really making them on behalf of a group. And so the, the decision problem becomes much closer to collective decision making, how we, we choose there. And so I thought it kind of, it's kind of interesting related to something Dave said about not wanting your future self that you might not much like um, or you don't really identify with to have dominion or over lesser your person, current, current yeah, yeah. self or a lesser person. And I think one thing that's interesting about that is that we do have this sort of odd feeling that our current self before dementia takes hold has more rights over the, the narrative of our personhood than that later self. But that, I mean, <coughs> from the point of view of what I would argue, but, and what I think I, I genuinely think is that that seems wrong to me, that that future person is just another stage of ourselves and they have just as much right to and part kind of, of this ownership. It's just, only part of the collective. So when you right. arrive at that present self who is, has dementia, they remain, that, that, that doesn't take precedence either. You're saying that. Right, right. Exactly. So you're saying it's like yes. a kind of, but it's not like a narrative self. Are you saying all these selves are connected and then we're putting a narrative on them? So I, I try to avoid that. So there's definitely some people who think that it's not just important to make a decision on behalf of just the collective, but also that you've somehow got to. The stories. Exactly, about, yeah. exactly. I'm, I'm slightly disinclined to that. And I think also comes back to something uh, that was said earlier about. Um, looking at these, uh, the, the self who has dementia as a diminished self, and so thinking of it as somehow having less rights over the self because of the trajectory that's been taken. And I was thinking about this particularly, and I work a lot with disabled adults, and totally outside of academic work and my um, kind of voluntary work, and a lot of what you know, you've been describing, what I've read about in your, your books about what people come to who are who get dementia is actually quite like what the disabled adults that I work with have had throughout their whole life. These are cognitively disabled adults. So 
But, I, but we would be very disinclined to think that they should have any less sort of agency over their life. And I think partly what we're, what, a mistake that we make when we think about people with dementia is we think of them by relating them to what they were before and think, oh, well, they're diminished. And so in some ways that means that they have a diminished, say, quality of life or ability to experience happiness or live a good life. But that's not at all something we would typically say of someone who had that cognitive so that disability is, that, throughout I, their I, life. That's really useful, but also it's quite challenging. So one of the things that, with John's campaign, we encourage people to do on hospital wards, so mm. wards for people who've got often very advanced dementia, is, and they can be quite shocking to go into these wards, is to put on their kind of is to kind of have up on a cork board or something photographs of themselves as they were in their previous lives because that more than anything forces people to recognise that this person who is not talking, who is, who is incontinent, who seems to have lost so much, has a kind of, you have to kind of recognise mm. the value of them through recognising the value of what they've lived through. And it is quite, I think, I mean, I, I, would, I think I would never describe someone as being a diminished self, but I would say that so much is lost. There is so much loss that goes on when people have dementia. And it's, and philosophically, I kind of agree with you, but actually emotionally, it's impossible to disregard that suffering and that loss and what falls away from people. Yeah. I was just going to say that you know, if you've lost a lot of yourself, in some ways you, I would argue that you perhaps are diminished. It's not a very nice word, but um, you know, it, 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 and I'd almost say that your friend, who had very noble liberal values, who became uh, was saying horrible things, in other, in some ways, a lot of our growing up and our learning and all our effort is to try and overcome some of those very base, tribal, nasty instincts of this very sometimes vicious monkey that we are. And some of those come out when we get demented. You know, vicars start grabbing at women uh, and... Um, see, I, don't, see, I absolutely don't agree with this. I mean, I think what, you're, what you say about people learning to suppress things, I think that's... A, I, I absolutely agree with that, and that goes to the issue of kind of shame and self-consciousness in the early stages of dementia. But, I, you know, the people I've known who've become kind of, disinhib kind of disinhibited, obscene, often violent kind of have ugly manifestations. I don't think they're a manifestation of a suppressed self. I think you could just say, that's an illness. That is being well, ill. It is the it's not revealing some kind yeah. of hidden self. I think it's the illness. But I think that regardless of whether it's revealing an inner self or whether it's something else, the worry is, that I think, that your future self is going to betray you. Yes. Right? It's yes. like, I don't want to become the person who hasn't got this... Yeah, so yeah. I don't, maybe diminished is the wrong word, but... Different. Different. I mean, I think but it's more than just different. I mean, I think, so, you know, we say so there's a baby, and then bit by bit the baby learns to use the potty and then the lavatory to be a bit, you know, to not spit and to kind of be tidy, to kind of maintain a kind of 
decorum in the world, to keep secrets, to be polite, to kind of hide lots of things that are going on in this kind of maelstrom of the self. And the whole thing about being a civil, you know, becoming a kind of part of society is to repress a lot of that. So you have this kind of turbulent, kind of forbidden inner life, and then you have the way you present the world. Necessarily, it's about kind of kindness and courtesy and belonging to society. And I do think that fear of you're going to let things out. I mean, your body becomes leaky and disobedient, but so does yourself. You kind of you, you, you say secrets. Um, you, you kind of show parts of yourself that you've been trying all your life to repress, and sometimes they're things that have kind of been making you miserable. And and but and and and, and, and we were talking earlier about how you know the whole thing about kind of shame and self-consciousness, and we were talking before we came in here about how often men find it harder than women do because, and this is a terrible generalisation really, but I think women commonly feel slightly that more able to admit to kind of bodily shame and to other forms of shame as well. And the people that I know who have dealt, I was going to say best, and I do not mean best at all, I mean who have find, found the kind of, ex, kind of going towards dementia easier are people who are kind of not ashamed of it, who say it out loud, who kind of acknowledge it. Um, and, and they move forward like that by kind of displaying it, whereas the people who are kind of the most anxious are people, maybe like your friend who, yeah. But you would argue that we shouldn't lock in our future selves. Like, you might think that while we're kind of at our peak, we should decide what should happen to us for the future, but your view would argue against that, right? You need to give your future self part of the say. They get a vote as well. Yeah. And, yeah. I think that's right, and I think one thing I was thinking about here, listening, because you might, you know, um, I'm not expert in this area at all, but listening to the way that you were talking about, uh, you know, living wills in advance, directives and so on. One thing I found helpful about thinking about this, this sort of, is a picture really, and I mean, I, I'm not, I definitely don't claim in the book I give a great deal of argument for it, but I find it, it's a helpful picture, and I think it's, there are arguments for it. To think of yourself as this kind of collective of individuals is that you then, when you're making choices on behalf of a future self, it's not actually so different in principle from making decisions on behalf of another person. And I feel this very strongly. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, kind of living well things coming, coming into this. And I think about, I'm, going to, I'm 42 now. If I'm thinking about making decision on behalf of myself when I'm 75, that really genuinely feels like a completely different yeah. person. They feel completely alien to me. And one thing that I think helps, that, that helps you think about is that if I'm just one person making a decision essentially on behalf of another person later on, there will be other people around, hopefully, there will be other people around at the time who know me very well, know that self actually a lot better yeah. than my current self knows that, and who will have my best interests at heart, you might hope. And so, one problem I think with living was is that, or, or this sort of thing, is that, you know, you would, those, those future people actually know a lot more, they'll be much better placed, and I would say don't have any less authority to make decisions on your behalf than you do now. I mean, there's not really this in-principle difference between me choosing on behalf of my 75-year-old self 
and loved ones at the time choosing on that behalf of that 75 year old self. Ruth, I don't have some sort of you know, authority Ruth, you'd over this. would be one of those uh, people that would be around, right? Mm. Um, listening to that future self mm. and hearing what they want. Who do you think should be making the decisions? Well, I said earlier about relating to a distant relative who had dementia. And it was much easier for me because I didn't have the immediate baggage in that I was not her partner, I was not her daughter, um, I was not her mother seeing it happen. And I do think there is something to be said for professionals in the field who are able to just accept somebody for who they are without the pain that obviously the, the, the relatives have. And two think, quick things. I'm not happy with the dem words dementing and demented. I don't, I, I don't really think that's the way we talk now. Um, and I'm also very concerned about talking about somebody being diminished as opposed to different. Uh, a year and a half ago, I was lying in a bed, not able to get to the toilet in time, looking out of a window, seeing a weather vane, and that was my big moment of my day, and not being able to read and concentrate because I was ill. I, I, I was just different. I wasn't diminished. I was still myself. I was still, I can see my 18-year-old self as an undergraduate up there, you know, beautiful and young with my whole life ahead of me, but I was just different. 18, I was different. Last year, I was different. I might be different when I'm 90 and I have dementia. It, it, I'm, I'm really concerned about the word diminished because it is our judgment on somebody, not their judgment about whether they are no longer themselves or not. Great, thank you. So before we go to our questions, I just want to ask one big question to all of you, um, which is what do you think society um, can do differently? What should we all be doing differently uh, to help us all make better decisions around dementia? Who's going to go first? <laughs> <laughs> okay, but having said who's going to go first, clearly I'm going to go first. Um, and and I, I don't want to sound glib about this. I mean, the first thing is we should talk more. We should talk about dementia more. Actually, not just about dementia more. We should... I mean, I think a lot of this is a problem about old age as well, not just about dementia. And I... And I'm kind of very struck about by how much kind of disgust there is around old age, around kind of decay. Um, and maybe that's connected to a fear of death, but I think it's also connected to a kind of just a fear of that kind of de deterioration. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure what society should do about disgust, um, but in some utopian world, we should at least think about that and think about that when we think about our own bodies and then how we think about other people's kind of bodies and minds and bodies. I mean, the other thing I would say, and this is not really decision-making, I mean, I was going to ask you a question, but I'll ask you later, but I was going to ask about these, all these, this collective, are other people involved apart from myself, or the kind of, are the family involved in that collective? Because they probably should be. And, I mean, I feel that the role of the carer and the, the, the unpaid carer and the paid carer is so grotesquely undervalued 
and that we're not really and it just props up the whole of society and they're a lot of the time they're the people who are making these decisions but they can't make the decisions because they're on their knees with tiredness and distress so a lot of a lot of it is very kind of material actually it's about kind of money it's about funding it's about recognition it's about changing the government hi I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories, or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. It's what we do best as human beings. And um, I feel that we shouldn't be putting our children and our loved ones in difficult positions when we are in a terrible situation ourselves. We should try and relieve them of the guilt and the burden of having to influence decisions. Not that they may necessarily make the decisions because often best interests in medical decisions are made by uh, uh, clinicians involved. And I feel that um, we need almost, in the medieval times there was a book sold very well called the uh, Ars Moriandi, The Art of Dying, which was very, very popular and it talked about bedside etiquette and whatever, what to do with dying, for, for the dying. We need almost, I think, an Ars Moriandi for the modern digital uh, world, a sort of digital book of the death, dead, so that we can actually open up that discussion. Uh, Victorians were obsessed by death, they hid everything about sex, now we're obsessed by sex and we hide uh, discussions about death. We, are, we don't, we've got a sort of collective amnesia about it, and unless with the demographic changes going on, the, you know, the, the figures for people suffering from dementia, for the next 50 years, that you know, it, it's just going to overwhelm us as a society, um, caring services and health services. And I think we just need to um, uh, look to the future and somehow make sure that it is us as individuals who help others look at our future self, whether you know from you know, philosophically or in terms of, dis uh, uh, of making decisions, because there's a lot of very practical <coughs> things that need to be done uh, for, you know, the f our future selves and the increasing number of older people with dementia. Great, thank you. Yeah, do you want to have answer the um, question as to what society should be doing differently? Or? Well, one small thing, um, when I worked for the Alzheimer's Society, there was something called uh, the Dementia Friend Scheme, and it wasn't perfect. I, I had some criticism of it myself. <laughs> but you got a badge. But, but you got a special badge. Yes, a badge. It's always good to have a badge, isn't it? Um, we're from the Blue Peter Mirror and Nikki, so we're keen on this. Um, but to, it was sort of a kind of first aid program where people learned some basics about dementia. And at risk of sounding really patronising, it's just amazing that you know, so many young people have turned up this evening to talk about something that hopefully is way, way, way off for them. But to just try and um, inform yourself and just some basic information um, 
in order to sort of change, change society and understand more. Perhaps if you're standing behind someone in a queue and they're struggling, it might be because they're early stages dementia, they've got early stages dementia, and if you understand a bit more about it, you might you know, be able to help them. Lovely, thanks. It's actually very close to what I was going to say. I mean, it's something I... No, 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 no. Kind of, it's something I, I've really thought about a lot with the, this, this sort of work of adults who have been, you know, cognitively disabled their whole lives. And um, is just how, how little people understand. I mean, that, but it's partly that thing about, you know, do we know whether people... Um, with, you know, particular conditions are happy or can be happy or can be content or be satisfied or are living fulfilling lives. I think the way to answer that is, is to find out how anyone's happy is just to spend a lot of time with them. And one thing, so one thing is a sort of first aid where you learn sort of facts about yes, dementia, yeah. but another is just to spend yeah. a good amount of time with. When you said that there was this sort of thing called the Dementia's Friends Scheme, I thought you were going to say one of the oh, things right. was, it was literally a sort of, you know, going and uh, visiting people and spending time. And I, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do that as a society, I don't know how you, you can't force people to do this, but something about, I think, a lot of, I mean, a lot of the thing you were talking about that we've sort of brushed death um, out of the picture is that a lot of this stuff happens and, and people try to make it happen sort of behind closed doors and it's, there's a sort of shame or at least there's a sort of attempt to deny it or, but actually if you just have a lot more experience you might, you know, people would come to realise that there are perfectly happy um, people, of course there are some who are going to be experiencing terrible distress and some who um, are, are going to be in pain and so on, but there are also going to be ways that people, um, a number of people who aren't having that and that it's just, and that's what I've so that's to bring it, that's what I've discovered with the, uh, working with the disabled adults, that people I think, I'm sure I would never have imagined could live kind of fully contented um, and satisfied and fulfilling, flourishing lives. I wouldn't have believed it before, I now absolutely have no doubt that that's possible. So something like that, some sort of just, yeah, um, greater encounter with people with that to, to teach yourself that. Yeah, it feels like that's the theme behind all of your answers, right? It's just, we need to be more engaged um, with what's happening um, when people are very old, when people have dementia. It might reduce our disgust, and it might also help us to face the realities of what it's like dying in the modern age, where dying can take an awfully long time, and may possibly make some decisions about that. Um, and yeah, also uh, maybe change our perception of the capacity that people have when they have dementia. Okay, thank you. I'm going to turn to questions from the audience online and in person. Um, so yeah, we'll start with the question over here, please. Sorry, I should have picked someone else. <laughs> If you could keep your hands up, that'd be great. Okay, um, thanks, that was really interesting. So I guess this is a question more for the people who think that um, ourselves with dementia are in some sense different or equal. So I can see how I'll be very well to give people prerogative to decide to discard the sugar from their coffee or to um, switch to virulin over punk or, or vice versa. Um, but I wonder if you may help talk me through some harder choices that people 
can express preferences about. So, for example, issues of sexual consent. I know this is something that people face in, in care homes. This is a growing issue. And I guess this seems like a good example of a decision that's weightier, but also one that people can still surely express preferences about, ones that might be rather different from the preferences they would have expressed <coughs> before they had the illness. And I'm wondering if people, especially who are sympathetic to this different but equal view, can maybe talk me through how they'd approach these types of issues. Everyone's looking at me. <laughs> no, no, I'm teasing. Um, well, first of all, it isn't disinhibition tends to come with frontotemporal dementia. A lot of people with dementia uh, don't lose inhibition. It, it's about memory loss or loss of confidence or perhaps hallucinations. Um, staff have an absolute right to be safe and people with dementia have an absolute right to be safe. So, of course, if there's a sexualized situation where someone is in any danger, um, there would have to be an intervention on that, of course. And I'm very glad the world has changed because I can say, certainly having been a teenager at this place in the 80s, <laughs> it was a pretty sexist place where if you, if you, certain things happened to you, you wouldn't have reported them because you, everyone would have just laughed at you. So I, I, I hear what you say completely and of course um, in, in a situation like that you'd, you'd have to intervene. If it was a, just a comment that was different to the way somebody would have once spoken, that might have to be judged on its own merits. It's difficult, isn't it? So I, a friend of mine, her mother had been married to her, this friend's father for 40 or 50 years, got dementia and went into a home where she fell in love with this man who was in the home and they started a sexual relationship and they were both fully consenting. There was no, obviously it was extremely painful for the husband, but she had become, she, that's, she'd become somebody who wanted to have an affair with that and, and I think it was a very fulfilling for her and for both of them. And then that partly also, I mean, I think it's interesting to talk about things like sex because that goes back to the issue of disgust. You know, how can someone who's got quite advanced dementia, who's in their 80s, who maybe not concentrate or anything, want to have sex? Well, of course they want to have sex. Why not? Um, so I think it's, I mean, consent is the big word, isn't it? There's, I mean, there are lots of people in hospital, nurses in hospital, worry about the kind of diet of people. People go into hospital and they might have been kind of, you know, a Muslim who's not eaten pork all their lives and suddenly wants to eat pork. Mm. And what do you do about that? Well, I guess you talk to them and you talk to their relatives and then you just have to make a, a kind of grown-up decision about it. And it goes back to this kind of collective. I mean, I'm going I'm to really think about this sense of a collective, rather, because I've always thought about it as like a kind of narrative self, as the bits joined up. But I guess it goes back to the sense of, you know, what the collective would want. And if, if that desire for pork or to have a kind of fulfilling sexual relationship, it, it, would, seem, it would seem very unkind to I deny think, it. I, I, I think, you know, if people are having you know, consensual sexual relationships, then that is fine. But there's lots of decisions that, um, it, you know, lots of... Now, you're allowed... Yeah, to make foolish decisions throughout your whole life. And some demented people who may be widowed end up you know, falling in love, 
of getting married or wanting to get married with all sorts of complex problems for their children in terms of inheritance and whatever. And you know, there are, um, uh, you know, there are, uh, it, it is a, you know, it can be very distressing for, 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 for families. For when, families, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, you don't want to deny an elderly uh, couple, uh, um, you know, opportunities for love. Uh, you know, there's not enough of it. A little bit, can't, you know, surely is, is good, but it can be very upsetting for, for, um, uh, for families. My mother was very paranoid about what my father was doing when she was, um, had uh, dementia and was in a home, and the carers who used to look after my dad would come and she would be distressed thinking that they were some fancy woman who's moved in. And, oh, the, you know, you, you can, it, it's horrible to witness after a nearly 60-year marriage. Great, thank you. We'll take another question. I think there's a question... Uh, um, there's one here, if that's okay. Um, yeah. Hi, um, thank you all very much. Um, I'm a, a psychiatrist. Um, there's a lot of overlap kind of between um, mental health care and, and um, in the care for people with dementia. Um, and I was wondering um, what your thoughts were on um, including people with lived experience, so not just carers, but also people who have dementia in kind of uh, decision-making, not individual decision-making, but in policy or in, in healthcare system decision-making? I mean, I, I mean, I think more and more people are... I mean, I, why not? What, what are we doing when we're saying, you know, I think Alzheimer's Society now has on their board, there's somebody who is living with dementia. And of course that's, of course that's the right way of going. You know, otherwise we're doing what we're saying we shouldn't be doing, which is talking for them, not to them and with them. And they have more experience than anybody else. So of course, I mean, obviously there are difficulties later down the line. But it seems it seems such a kind of paternalistic attitude to say that those people who know the most about something can't be trusted to, to be part of the decision-making process. So the decisions are being made for them. I don't know. I don't know enough about the, these organisations, but certainly in the in the. Um, uh, things like NANCAP and, and, and organisations that work with adults who have um, cognitive disabilities throughout their lives, um, they've, they've had um, people with those disabilities on their, their boards and panels and so on for years and years. It's, it's interesting, actually, that this might be a... a you know, a, a, it struck me a few times during this that there might be you know, lessons to be learned across those two spheres, and one of those that certainly seems to be. And most of these, there's a, a kind of evening club that I run and... Um, just about all of those, they are sort of just part of the charter that they will have. Um, you know, half of their, their governing committee will be people who are, are members of the club in the sense that they're, they're cognitively disabled adults. Yes, I, I, I agree. Um, I, I'd like to recommend a book uh, by Wendy Mitchell, who has dementia. I don't know if you know her. Her book's fantastic, uh, What I Wish People Knew About Dementia. I found out about her too late to invite her. But yeah, should, should we have another event? I shall say. Yeah, we should, and I, I, I know Wendy quite well. Oh, do you? Every time yeah. we meet, she doesn't know my name, but that's okay. <laughs>
but she's yes. at, and what she is fantastic at is is the kind of positive the positive side of living with dementia she is such a kind of she is absolutely insistent that she be taken seriously she, her life she says is much better now than it was when she was shy and insecure and quite a kind of repressed young woman and she has learned so she and also what she's fantastic at is all the strategies you can put in place um she should be on you know she should be on many boards well certainly we've we in our stroke service we always try and have people who have used the service and they can be very inspiring for uh, for all of us and we had a man young man with a locked in syndrome who could only move his eyes who was the patient representative and is a constant reminder of the need to involve people who've used the service. And um, one study I'll just talk about, is, which is happiness, which increases as you get older, contentment with life. And they've looked at people with probably the most devastating neurological problem, and having a stroke and being locked in. And people who are happy beforehand become miserable a year later, they're at the same level of happiness. People who are miserable before it happened are miserable and a year later are miserable. So there's something you know about that is just deeply rooted in us about what makes us happy and, and uh, that, that is very, very uh, hard to define. Thank you. Yeah, let's take another question. Um, there's a couple of questions on the front here. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, um, my name's John. Um, I'm just thinking that one of the complexities about helping people to make decisions or making decisions with people when they have dementia is the intolerant nature of our society. Mm -hmm. And the, I mean, actually, you said, in, you, and you were talking in a very particular context, but you mm -hmm. talked about everybody's right to be safe. Yeah. But I think one of the problems is that, that Sometimes we're too concerned about making yeah. people safe. So that, for example, I've seen people in, in residential homes who have become aggressive because of the concern of staff to keep them safe. So they've wanted to keep them in a particular place. They've not wanted to allow them to go out for a walk or whatever. I mean, I, I know that if, if I get dementia, then I suppose I'll be termed as somebody who wanders. Because I do, I, I go for long walks. Mm. Um, and probably if I get dementia, I, I will get lost sometimes. And people will find me. And there's a risk of those people being very critical towards relatives or towards staff. But I, I don't know how we overcome that. But, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a problem which leads to some kind of yeah. Great, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. When I, when I talked about safety, perhaps yeah, I should have been a bit clear that I was talking about sexual harassment, and you're, you're so right. Um, fortunately, this is not the case in the place where I currently work, but I have worked somewhere where it was very difficult for people to go outside, and someone who wanted to smoke wasn't able to smoke. These are, these are appalling restrictions on people's rights and, and wishes. And I'm glad to say where I'm working at the moment, 
the right to vitamin D and being in daylight is recognised. But so many people in residential care do not see daylight from one month to the next. And, uh, I, you know, I completely agree with you. We saw that very shockingly during COVID, I think. So, mm. first of all, care homes were dustbins where people with COVID mm. were put as if it didn't really matter if that's where it spread. And then they were locked down so securely that even when the rest of us were going on holiday, they were not allowed out of the home or people were not allowed into the home in a way that, you know, as if you could just take all those decisions away from them. Great, thank you. Um, we'll just move on because there's quite a few questions. Johan, are there questions online? Yes. I don't have any here. So do you want to read one out? So... Francisco is asking how about when there's abuse from the person with mental condition over the caretakers? So how, how the family member deal with this, this situation? Could you, just, could you just say the situation one more time? The situation is when the, the person with a mental condition uh, mistreat uh, the, the, the caretakers. So there's uh, violence or some kind of abuse from the person with mental condition over the caretakers. Which is not uncommon, I believe. I mean, I, 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 a, a friend of mine, their, their parents, they were, she got dementia, and, and this was partly about what happens behind closed doors. It's that thing that, you know, that you just, you don't know what's going on. I mean, I, I think there are terrible things going on behind, behind closed doors and a lot of that's to do with how people behave when they can't be seen and he was looking after her he had cancer and she was she was beating him up he was kind of black and blue and unable to and it was just it was like this unraveled chaos that was going on in this little this little house on a little suburban street um and i mean there is kind of you know, in, in homes and things, there is safeguarding about that. That should be protected. I think the difficulty <coughs> is when it's happening kind of out of sight. And, that, and partly that goes back to what we were saying about what we want to do to make things better. It's, it's about opening up our society a bit more so we all feel a little bit more responsible for each other so we can see what's going on, so we, we, we don't just kind of walk away from... I mean, I just think, in, in, in the same way that we don't want to think about what goes on in prison, we don't want to think about rough sleepers, we don't want to think about what goes on in kind of houses where dementia is going unchecked. I think it's very difficult for carers who often have very little training and uh, when they are, you know, they're poorly paid, as we've already mentioned, and it is very difficult when they are being physically um, uh, uh, attacked by someone who or people with dementia who may be quite strong and you know if they retaliate I can almost understand it uh, then of course it's wrong but uh, they are human and um, then you know there's all these cases of abuse within within homes and everyone throws up their arms and says oh, I'm terrible terrible but you try working them a few weeks uh, in, in, in one of these places and you're, 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 um, you'll be stretched to the limit. This is not enough help, is that, it? They, they, you know, they're undervalued and understaffed and, um, and of course, you know, 
giving people some sort of sedation is not really the answer, uh, and it's you know years ago that was a you know probably overused. It you know it, it's a it's a lose lose situation for many people who work in in uh, homes specialising in, in dementia care. I'm going to move on because there's quite a few questions. Uh, do we want to take one more question from online, Johan? Yeah. And then we'll, and then there's at least three more in the room I can see. So, uh, how do you feel about the ethics of lying to those with uh, that have dementia? I, so, I, so that's a fabulous question. How do we feel about people who are lying? So maybe the word lie isn't the wrong word. There's something called validation. It's very kind of, that's quite talked about now in the world of dementia. And so if somebody says to you, kind of, if, think of what it's like if you have dementia and you say it's Saturday and you're told, no, it's Monday and you want to have breakfast and you're told actually it's lunch and you have, and to continue correct that person seems to me to be an act of cruelty. So validation is about entering into their world, their alternative reality. And is that lying? I mean, I think what it is, is, is it can be just about kind of kindness and imagination, about, and it's an act of empathy. I mean, I remember when Dad used to kind of knock at the door and say, it's time to eat, and it would be like two in the morning, and we'd get up and we'd have a midnight feast. And that was a and that, but I think one of the things that happens in that situation is that what you're doing is you're almost losing reciprocity. So you're kind of you come to accept that you can no longer live in the same world that you used to live in with each other. That you have the shared reality, and you're having to abandon that and enter their reality. But it's not really a lie. Great, thank you. Uh, I think there's a question from. Uh, this man here in the great top of the front. Yes, thank you very much for the talk. I was trying to uh, bring some order in my notes. Uh, so my question would be on the notion about the future self being like a different person. Because I was wondering if that is really the case. So I, I mean, part of the reason why we, for example, don't allow children to make legal decisions is partially because they are not fully aware of the consequences of their actions and therefore we can't hold them fully accountable and like I'm not talking about allowing them to take a walk or something but like really heavily legal decisions and then I was wondering where's the difference between a person with dementia not being fully aware of the consequences anymore and then if, if I make decisions for my future self, if it is maybe more like a legal guardian making decisions for a child. So I don't know if I, if I misunderstood uh, your opinion about it. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I think those kind of cases are, are difficult. So typically we don't think there's such a problem with choosing on behalf of someone else if you think that other person's just going to have a lot less information than you do. And that might be because they're a child and they've just not learned as much or because they have living with dementia and they've lost some of that information. But it might also just be that they, they don't know it. You know, if you choose on behalf of a friend um, who you just know hasn't got as much information about this particular thing for whatever reason, then that doesn't seem, um, it doesn't seem particularly problematic. 
I mean, I think in that case, I, I, so I, I, I agree that there are going to be cases for sure where we do this. Um, one thing I was trying to do with it was push back a little bit that it's sort of always a good idea and that somehow, or the sort of presumption that because the person before dementia has some more cognitive faculties than they have later on, that, that they should be deferred to in, in some way, that, um, that there are a whole bunch of things that you can make decisions about um, you know, that, that later time. And, and often you can make better decisions about it because although you may have lost some information like what con some consequences will be you'll gain some new information like what it's like to be someone who lives with um dementia and if your pre your prior to dementia self uh thinks oh my god that, that situation must just be awful it must be terrible i must do everything i can to just sort of if not end it quickly um sort of you know sedate my future self throughout or something if that's what my, my current self would be like, it would be much, much better to, they, they just have a, that, that, it's the current self actually who lacks a lot of the information, the information that you'll gain um, when you do have dementia. So I think this is always going to be a bit of a balancing act, but I think, you know, you, there is a general principle that it's not bad to make decisions on behalf of um, others when you are confident you have more information. I think the, one of the problems is, one of the things I guess we were, was coming up a lot was we're far too quick to assume in cases of dementia that we have more information than that person. Um, they have a huge amount of new information about what it's actually like and what the limitations are and what, what they, um, how, how they reason and what their values are at the time. So yes, I, I, I definitely didn't want to be suggesting that there's just no situation in that there's going to be, I mean, the sort of very, very advanced cases that people were talking about, I think it seems clear in that case that you've got to have someone else making choices on their behalf. But, um, but I think it's just a much broader range of cases where um, you should be pretty slow to think that your current self knows more. Um, David's touched on this already, but just to be clear, in terms of the, the British mental health legislation, you have, you, you know, you have a right, right to make a bad decision. Um, yeah. Great. Thank We've you. all done it. <laughs> uh, if you could just put your hands back up for a moment. There's, oh yeah, there's a question here. Thank you. My, my question's about friends. Um, my friend, I'll call her Judy, my friend has dementia. Uh, she's never been very close to her children. Um, she's had a wide circle of friends, including a small group who've sort of stuck together over 40 years. So we until 10 years ago, we were her sort of collective. And as she's moved through into, it's now her family. And I'm interested in your experience or your views. As, I mean, essentially, when I saw this decision-making, I immediately thought about power. Yeah. When I think about decision-making, I think about power. Who, who, who has mm -hmm. the power? And um, fair enough, her, her children, her adult children have the power, but the friends, feel anything left out, upset, worried, um, any range of them. Have you talked to the children? I don't really want to go into the details. <laughs> I mean, that's painful. I don't know what to say about that because, I mean, lots it of people... Must be quite it must be very common. I mean, even more common, I guess, are people who have neither friends nor children. And so, actually, we often talk about people as if 
think or advocates and they don't but it must be I mean I think it is common and and there's this kind of there's this ridiculous assumption that blood mm. is what counts in the end whereas what counts is kind of affection and experience and knowledge and loyalty well, and One thing that you might worry about there is that, I mean, I, this is more autobiographical than it should be, but you know that, that sometimes children don't know parents nearly as well as friends do. I mean, if one thing you really want from the person who will care for you during this time or make decisions on your behalf or help you make decisions, you know, kind of in consultation with you, but kind of scaffold or support your decisions, is someone who really knows you well. There's a lot of things that we don't know as well about our parents as, our, as their friends would. And so I think there's a real danger in those cases. Quite apart from the power situation, I was meaning just the kind of knowledge of the things you need in order to help with those decisions that, um, that you're going to lack if you, just, if you only pay attention to what the children know about their parents. Who is you? We have no status. Yeah. Do you want to respond? I'm not sure I should say this, but I'm just very moved by what you say. I mean, I've had my partner's funeral organised many years ago by his family because we weren't we weren't married. <laughs> so it, it's a very very moving situation you you've put forward. I wonder if there is anything in terms of advanced directors where somebody well, could well, could, you, you could refer to their their community and yeah. the people that they. Yeah. Um, lasting powers of attorney and things like that for health and for money. Mm -hmm. You can, don't have to choose your family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in a tough. small community so. where we were, there was a you know, much loved woman who had Alzheimer's disease, and um, her daughter came in and really, when she died, it was lots of inappropriate uh, things happened. She was a, a, a you know, a, a, a nature-loving, sort of earth mother -y type person. The daughter was an evangelical Christian and somehow spun this whole funeral around and we were very uncomfortable with that, but what can we say? You know, we, we were powerless to, to, to do anything. Great, thank you. So, should we take one more question from... Uh, uh, one more question from the audience we have time for before we finish. Yes, please. Hello. Um, I'd like to, I'm not sure if it's a question or not, but um, to talk about the collective. So I work in social care and our staff are, have to make decisions in quite a timely way often, often in emergency situations. Um, yes, they work in a person-centred way and try to get to know what the person's wishes are um, and talk to the family and talk to as many people as they can, but they're often working at pace, if I'm honest. Um, and often it's a situation where a decision has to be made to, often around the safety of the person or to um, support the carer or the unpaid carer 
And I suppose it's about the collective because then that, that, that decision making gets even more complex if that person is then in a residential or nursing setting where there are other people. So just, just kind of listening to making decisions, it, it, it's a very complex and difficult thing. And although it's about the person, sometimes there are other people involved and you're thinking of a wider collective as well. So, yeah, it, it's, um, it's given me a lot of food for thought. <laughs> Great, thank you, yeah. Um. I'll be a bit pretentious and say you need John Stuart Mill and you need Tom Kitwood for this. If you don't know who Tom Kitwood is, look him up because um, he really transformed uh, dementia care and attitudes towards dementia 30 years ago. Um, that's such a brilliant question. Um, the reality is that in residential care, it's a communal situation. So unfortunately, obviously, there will be compromises sometimes because you're thinking of a community as well as the, the individual. And I think it's really brilliant that you've raised the fact that staff are under a lot of pressure and, they're tr and, and we're all trying to do the best we can in difficult circumstances. Um, I don't really have an answer, but I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> It reminds me actually of something that you said in one Ooh, of our email exchanges. Anna keeps where, yeah. quoting me and I forget what I've said. Because Anna's said, asking you these questions about whether you should go with the interests of the person as they currently were or their earlier interests. Mm. And um, I'm also interested in this safety question. Apparently mm, we, yeah, we choose really safety for our loved ones or autonomy for ourselves. Mm. And you were talking about this uh, um, resident who wanted to smoke. <laughs> and you know, should 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 he be encouraged to smoke? Should he be allowed to smoke? Taken out to smoke, or shouldn't he? What was in his best interest? And then you said, yeah, but actually, it would take up a whole um, member of staff's time to take him outside to smoke, and there needs to be a certain number of staff inside. And just the reality of the caring situation means that you know maybe we can't always be thinking in this sort of, at this sort of level about an individual, but maybe we need sort of rules of thumb yeah. for what we should do. Yeah. Well, I would say this because the director of my home um, is an LSE graduate as well. But I do think where I work currently, we, we, we work, work miracles in the sense that we try and make sure that people who want to go outside or want to smoke or want to do something that isn't part of the collective unit get the chance to do it. But I, I think what the gentleman said earlier about safety, it's... You know, it, it's. I think it's on the mind of staff all the time that it's got to be we're about. So risk averse. Yeah, we're so risk averse. And, yeah. You know, one little thing. That yeah. If someone complains, it goes to the inspectorates or whatever, and we, you know, people live in fear. Well, we want to be able to get drunk and have fun, even <laughs> when we're old. And on that note, we should finish. Thank you. <laughs>